Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for listening to Creative Control, a listener-funded podcast. If you would like to help and support Creative Control and keep this podcast going, please visit patreon.com slash creative control and make a monthly flexible donation today. Alex Olean is an acclaimed author, writer, and professor currently based in Vancouver, where she chairs the creative writing program at the University of British Columbia. Originally from Montreal, Olean's work has been published by The New Yorker, Tin House, and Best American Short Stories, and she has written five novels, including 2013's Inside, which was shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Her latest novel is 2019's Dual Citizens, which is available in Canada via House of a Nancy and Penguin Random House around the world. Dual Citizens is a compelling story about two sisters who overcome a strange childhood and try to make sense of the world and the people they encounter within their intertwined existences in Montreal and New York. Ahead of her appearance at this September's Eden Mills Writers' Festival, Alex and I had a talk about her life and work and how those things inform this brilliant new novel, Dual Citizens. With the support of listeners like you who subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creativecontrol, plus in-kind support from CFRU 93.3 FM, Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. This is the 486th episode of Creative Control, featuring the gifted Alex Olin with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Alex. How's it going? Great. How are you, Vish? I'm well. I'm well. It's nice to speak with you. Where in the world are you today? I am in my office in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia. Nice, nice. Now, my understanding, based on our correspondence, is that you just arrived home from somewhere? Yeah, that's right. I was on tour, uh, on book tour, for most of June. So I started in Toronto, and then I uh, was 
touring around the U.S. for a while. Um, so it was really interesting, but it's also very nice to be home. Nice, nice. And how long have you been in Vancouver? Uh, a year and a half. Oh, so where are you from? I grew up in Montreal. Um, I lived there my whole life, and then I moved to the U.S. Uh, to go to school for university, and then I wound up living in the U.S. for a very long time, and I just moved back to Canada last year. Nice. All right. That sounds great. So you came up in Montreal as a just generally. What was that like for you? Yeah, Montreal is a really special place. It's really, I think, uh, when you grow up there, it's really in your bones, you know, the, because of the specific culture there. I loved living there. My father was a professor in the English department at McGill, so I sort of grew up on the campus there uh, in downtown Montreal, and uh, a lot of what I write tends to have bits and pieces of Montreal in it, uh, even though I haven't lived there for a very long time. It's a sort of a, a way of writing a little bit of a valentine to my home city. Nice. So your father was also a professor. What did what was his uh, uh, course of study? Yeah, my father was a, an English professor. He taught American literature and also a lot of courses in film and, and documentary film. So it's fun, actually. A lot of the time when I travel around with my with my work now, especially within Canada, I meet people who took uh, English or American literature courses with my father. And it makes me think, this is kind of a small country in, in a lovely way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, that some of what you're describing, I assume, makes it into the storylines and characters of your work. Is that fair to say? Like when you were just talking about documentary filmmaking and uh, English, and, and I, I already hear some of that resonating within your latest book, Dual Citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Dual Citizens has a lot of stuff about film in it and documentary film and, and even a bit of reality uh, television, which is not a specialty of my father's. But uh, I grew up in a household where uh, we watched films all the time. Um, my father would show us, you know, whatever films he was interested in, whether or not they were particularly, you know, child appropriate. And I always really, uh, really loved them. And uh, when I was a child, one of my main memories is that at 11 o'clock, the PBS station in Vermont would start playing um, black and white films, like old screwball comedies, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies, and my father would be watching them because he was sort of a night owl, and I would sneak out of bed and come downstairs and watch them with him, and it was a, a very sort of special time for the two of us. So in this book, it was really fun for me to kind of write back to those fond childhood memories and include a lot of um, summaries and discussions of the movies that I've loved in my own life. Yeah, that that okay, that makes sense to me. And I, I know I haven't said this already, but I thoroughly enjoyed your book, uh, Dual Citizens, if I might say. Oh, thank you so much. That's great to hear. Yeah, no, it's it's lovely. And uh, I was just telling my wife, I, I was recommending it to her. I was suggesting she check it out because I think she would uh, like it as well. Um, I want to get into the book in a moment. But uh, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about is your educational trajectory, because, you know, one of the things that pops out on your resume, <laughs> your bio, your biographical details is you attended Harvard. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, that's where I went after Montreal. So this, you know, we hear a lot about Harvard. I've had other Harvard graduates <laughs> as guests on the show, and they're like, yeah, you know, it's a school. What do you want me to say? Do you have any particular insight about Harvard? Is it everything we think it is? What do we misperceive about Harvard? I mean, it's obviously a, a great privilege to have, have gone there. I 
you know, like most people, I, I was very young when I when I went away to school and I, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was sort of too young and dumb to be intimidated by the place, which was a good thing. And I just sort of showed up and and I was I was thrilled by it. I mean, I'm someone who was just a huge nerd growing up. I was very <laughs> bookish and I had like this ridiculous asymmetrical haircut and braces and these Coke bottle glasses. And so going to Harvard was like, you know, coming to my home planet of other nerds. <laughs> so it was very comfortable in that regard. Okay. And what did you actually literally study at Harvard? I studied English. Uh, I, you know, I was very comfortable in English because it was the one thing I knew I was always super weak in math. And I remember I had to fulfill a science requirement or I was going to, you know, be basically expelled from school. And it took me forever. It took me my entire first year to, um, to get through the science requirement. And I eventually wound up taking a course in astronomy, which I think I had confused with astrology. <laughs> <laughs> And for my final project, I wrote a science fiction story, hoping that they would accept it in lieu of any actual equations. So it was very dicey for me to get through the, <laughs> the parts of schooling that were not related to books and fiction and reading. So you're smart enough to get into Harvard, but you're not smart enough to know the difference between astronomy and astrology. Is that what you're saying? I, I have an extremely lopsided brain, is what I'm trying to say. Goes with your, your old haircut, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, I graduated from the University of Guelph with uh, two English degrees, undergrad and a master's. Is there a stigma about Guelph the way there is about Harvard? Do, do people think, oh, those Guelph snobs with their English degrees? Yeah, that's right. Harvard is the Guelph of uh, Massachusetts, I think. It's on the specials. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate the background. Uh, you're, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you're a you know you're a multi you're a very acclaimed you've won awards right you're an acclaimed author we don't have to get into that stuff right let's just skip that part we'll skip that part you're doing very well for yourself you're now teaching at UBC so everything's going well there let's get into dual citizens uh, as I mentioned I, I'm a huge fan of this book can you do us and myself and listeners a favor and in your own words kind of summarize the plot of this book. Right. So Dual Citizens is the story of two half-sisters, Lark and Robin, uh, who have the same mother and two different fathers. They grow up together in Montreal and uh, their fathers are absent and their mother is, let's say, ill-equipped for parenting as a task and not particularly interested in it. So they really raise each other. And it's... Um, it's a love story, really, between the two of them, and it follows their relationship from childhood through adulthood. And at various points, they're extremely close. At certain periods, they're estranged. But ultimately, in their lives, they know that they can always count on one another. On the one hand, Lark and Robin are quite different. On another, they're quite similar. Uh, I mean, beyond being family, they're, they're family, but they are distinct personalities. Can you just do us a favor and maybe... Well, since I have you on the line here, you know, it's rare on some level to read a book and then get to talk to the author about it. Can you characterize both Lark and Robin from your perspective in terms of their personality types and maybe also maybe what inspired them? I'm just curious uh, in your own life, because you've mentioned earlier that some of your own life is reflected in this book in particular. Um, can you talk about these two characters? Yeah, so Lark is the, the narrator, the one who tells the story, and she's um, extremely quiet. She's very shy and observant. 
she's the kind of person who's happier watching other people converse or participate in the world than she is doing it herself. And she also is really uh, drawn to film and she wants to be a, a filmmaker or editor and pursues that, that path. Robin is her younger sister, and she's really sort of feral. She's extremely independent and more rebellious. And um, she is also a very talented pianist. And at one point, she goes to Juilliard. And uh, it seems like she's going to have this extremely uh, glamorous career as a concert pianist, although she ultimately decides that what's more important to her is personal freedom and making her own terms for her art. So both of the sisters are extremely interested in making art, and that's a big theme in the book, is what are the ways in which people in general and women in particular are either given permission or not given permission to make art? What are the ways in which art making is encouraged or valued for women? And what are the obstacles to that for women? And both Lark and Robin, they wind up pursuing un very unconventional paths in their lives, in terms of their professional careers and their families in a way, um, because they both want to be free. So these two character types are different in their own way. They're both looking for some kind of purity in their life experiences. Do you have a sense of where that stems from in terms of your omniscient voice as the as the creator of these two? Where is this coming from for you, this purity of experience aspect of the of these two characters? Yeah, I would say that the book is not directly autobiographical in terms of its events, but it's certainly deeply informed by experiences that I've had going through the world, trying to figure out what's meaningful to me, what I want out of life, what kind of family life do I want to have, what, what does it mean for me to be a writer and to tell stories, both in, in books and in person, what does it mean to to tell the story of your own life. So this book is really an examination of ways in which women can chart their paths through the world, sometimes, you know, encountering obstacles or failing, and then ultimately succeeding in, in making a life um, that makes sense to them. Is there a particular reason you chose Lark to be the sort of, we're getting Lark's perspective on this. Is there, and I mean, as the story unfolds, we learn that it is Lark who gets into filmmaking and, and reality television filmmaking, telling other people's stories, editing them. Is there, is that a device? Is that, is there a reason that we're hearing Lark's side of things? Yeah, I, I was really interested in the idea of storytelling and Lark is a storyteller. Uh, she is someone who tells stories through through films, and she is always throughout her entire life. She's she's obsessed with the idea of well, how how documentary is documentary film compared to like fictional feature films, and even when she gets into reality television, she starts to think about how all stories are constructed. And uh, even ones that purport to be true. And I was interested in comparing that to the idea that all families are constructed and there's no such thing as one natural or yeah. inevitable form for a family to take. And that's what happens to Lark. She makes her own family. Now, are, when is this book set, so to speak? Right. So Lark and Robin grow up in Montreal in the mid to late 70s is when they're born. So they grow up through the 80s. They go to college uh, in the 90s. And then the book ends in, I guess, the mid-2010s. 2012 around is when it ends. Right. So it covers a fair span of time. Right. And it's covering a real span of time? Like there's a mystical kind of surrealist quality to aspects of the book. And there are 
sort of glimpses of real New York, real Montreal. And then by the time we get to the reality TV portion, I'm starting to question what's real, what's not, you know? <laughs> like, that's an interesting aspect of it as well. But you're trying to chronicle an actual time in our cultural zeitgeist, so to speak. Is that fair? Well, there's definitely actual events and cultural changes that appear in the book. It was sort of fun to write that stuff because it involved doing historical research on my on my own life and stuff that I have lived to, through, like emailing friends from school and saying, do you remember when you sent your first email message? You know, things like that, <laughs> because I wanted it to be more or less accurate in the book. But you're correct that there's also a kind of fable-like quality to, for example, the childhood scenes in Montreal. and. What's interesting to me about that is the idea of memory and how memory always shapes the way we think about our past and nostalgia and things that we hold on to and things that we lose as we look back. So it does become a kind of uh, a past world that's uh, based in the imagination, right? Just as much as it's based in reality. Right. And and that comes through in the fact that it, this is a recollection on on by Lark, really. I mean, this we're we're, right. we're actually getting a story from her about mm-hmm. her life. Okay, all right. So that's the fog of all of that, and you have people with injuries where their mind is clouded, and, and <laughs> right. so there's a lot of like, what's real, what's not, what is actually happening. That that's all <laughs> fascinating. Now, you also have this throughout the book. Uh, you have these characters who are independently minded. <clears throat> But completely and utterly codependent. Can you talk? <laughs> can you talk about that dynamic? And if you disagree, that's fine. But that was my reading of almost everyone actually that I encountered in the book. They have these, you know, rebellious, maverick kind of streaks within them, but also they need someone else to kind of push them along. They and they bring people along with them after they seem to have been jettisoned from their lives. Even they come back. It's interesting. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that's, that's funny. I, I'd never thought about it as codependence, but I, I'm not saying you're wrong. Um, how, could, in- <laughs> how could I be wrong? I mean, it's my show after all. <laughs> no, it's just something that occurred to me. No, please, please, uh, please tell me what you make of that. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I guess I, I do think about what, what it means to take care of other people and the fact that our lives are, are relational, our identities are relational. We're one person in relationship to our parents, another person in relationship to our partners or our work colleagues or to our children. Um, so if you want to create a portrait of a whole person, you have to think about all of those intersecting relationships in their life and how those are informed by other people. Mm-hmm. When you write a book about siblings, I, I think I'm drawn to the way in which siblings have such a particular role in your life, someone that you've known since you were a child has such a distinctive and layered and multifaceted vision of you. Like when I look at my own siblings, when I look at, for example, my brother, I, I see him as he is now, but I also simultaneously see him as he was at 28 or 14 or six. And all of those presences are in the room with us. And it does create a sort of permanence um, to memory. That's fascinating to me. So I, I think that's for the sisters in this book, and during the period when they're estranged from one another, they feel so much loss, right? Mm. Lark, when she is not in touch with Robin, which um, happens in the middle part of the book, she's lost her sister, but she's also lost a huge part of herself because she's lost that memory of herself that her sister has. So when they come back together, it's such a huge relief to her to have that ballast, you know, that sense of anchoring back in her life. 
Well, you've, you've framed it as a book about siblings and sisterhood, but it's also very much, from my perspective, a book about parenting. Uh, mm -hmm. Whether it's the lack of parenting, whether it's the desire to nurture and parent, that's all there. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about that what you were just describing in terms of their 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 codependence their interdependence like their interdependence i suppose might even be a better term for these two characters on some level but they don't really have a parent um right. for a good chunk of their lives and i wonder if you're speaking on that ability to survive and and have a sense of self against you know the the notion that you have no one really to take care of you and tell you right from wrong is that swimming around in here too yeah i think they they have to invent it for themselves hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's almost a blank slate in the sense that, you know, one of them, the father disappears almost immediately the other the other father um dies quite young and their mother is you know she's not uh she's not devoted she's pretty absent herself and erratic when she is when she is around so when they think about who they want to be in the world and what they want a family to be they really have to make it up for themselves they have to chart new territory and i feel like that's something that a lot of people in general have to have to do no matter what your family circumstances are you have to decide am i going to be like my parents am i going to rebel against the models of parenthood that i that i have what am i going to take and what am i going to leave behind right. what am i going to what am i going to make up for myself that's a pretty common situation i think and it's a it's a pretty rich way to think about how you're going to move through the world you know and when you have to decide am i going to be a parent yourself it's a very kind of laden and emotionally intense decision some people don't want to be parents at all and that's of course totally legitimate too do you mind me asking if you're a parent I am a parent. Yeah, I have a child and I, I did have um, the experience of motherhood while I was writing this book. And I'm, I'm sure that's um, worked its way into the, the material very deeply. Oh, absolutely. Oh, now that you've divulged that, I would say absolutely it's there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. Well, I, I'm a parent as well. And I talk about it maybe too much on this show <laughs> uh, with musicians and whoever who I just maybe it's the age I'm at. I'm just talking to a lot of people who have just had kids themselves uh, or are going through the experience of having five, six, seven-year-old kids. Has that, being a parent, altered your relationship or understanding, at least, of what your parents went through? Yeah, I mean, I, I, nothing makes you more forgiving of your parents than trying to do it yourself, right? And re realizing how inevitable the... Uh, the mistakes may may be, but I, I have to say I was pretty forgiving of my parents before I had a 
before I had a, a child myself, I, I was very lucky with my parents and I've always been very grateful to them. So you, you, sound, I, you sound like you had a fairly functional upbringing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, the, the dysfunctional uh, childhood described for the, for the women in, in my novel is fortunately not based on my own whatsoever. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, you did talk about Lark and Robin's mom there, and I asked you to characterize those two characters, but can we talk a little bit about the role of their mother in this book, uh, she's almost a. She is literally almost. Why? Well, literally almost doesn't really make sense. So I'm, <laughs> I take that. Sorry, it's my Guelph degree. It comes through every once in a while, and it's not great. No, she's like a ghost. I feel like she haunts the book. She's there. She's not there when she shows up. It's disruptive, and then she kind of lurks away again. But that's my perspective on her. Can you talk about this character and where she kind of came from? Where her characterization came from? From your perspective. Yeah, I mean, Marianne uh, had her children very young and, and raised them herself, and she didn't do a great job probably because she didn't really want to be put in the situation that she was in. She's um, someone who rebelled against her strict Catholic upbringing by not having a traditional family life in the way that her parents of their generation would have considered appropriate. So she um, she's really actively pushing back against the cultural norms for women in her era, right in the in the seventies. Uh, she's not like heroic in the way that she uh, she ultimately enacts that rebellion. But I tried, at least from my perspective, it's understandable that she felt very confined and restricted. she's like a wild animal in a cage, you know, and she just wants to break out of it. And then as she gets older, you know, she's a career woman. She follows her career. She has sort of unsuccessful relationships with, with men. And then she winds up being mentally uh, compromised with early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. And that really intersects with the themes I was discussing earlier about the kind of subjectivity of, of memory and how our understandings of the world are of necessity, kind of personal and patchy, and we kind of stitch them together as, as best we can. So as a maternal figure, like she's not a rock, right? She's she's ghostly, as as you say, and it's very hard for her daughters to make sense of that. But Robin, who is the more rebellious, you know, outwardly kind of aggressive sister, is actually very understanding of it. I think she gets that kind of ferality, mm -hmm. that feeling of being constrained by who the world wants you to be. And she she's very forgiving of, of her mother. It takes Lark a little bit longer to come around to understanding it, but eventually she does too. There's a moment in the book, or, or actually a whole segment of the book, where Lark is working in the realm of reality TV, and she's a very gifted video and film editor. Mm -hmm. And there are moments where she's editing characters who seem a lot like Marianne uh, to me, and she's able to manipulate them in a way to make them come across however the show wants them to come across. And I couldn't help but think, as I'm hearing the perspective, I'm reading Lark's perspective on her mother, and so we, we're getting this edit of someone else's life. I couldn't help but see a parallel between those things that maybe when she was at a point, she recognized this type of person in her mother and was able to edit them in a somewhat favorable way, I suppose. Do you, am I getting, yeah. too, getting too Freudian with this? <laughs> no, I think it's great. And I, and I think that, you know, through editing, she's able to, 
create a version of her mother that she didn't have in life. Uh, you know, that may be stretching it a little bit, but I, I do think, you know, so much of what draws people to make art is some kind of lack or a, a need to make sense of a, a difficult experience or um, a traumatic kind of experience in their life. So for Lark, you know, she finds editing to be a way that she can make sense of uh, the world, even in this sort of indirect way. Yeah, not necessarily even her world, but the world generally. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, now, we, we've talked a lot about the women in this book, but we haven't really talked too much about the men. You've talked about the the fathers that disappear, the disappeared fathers, but I view Lark's view of men and her portrayal of men almost as though she finds all men to be kind of these curiosities. Um, (laughs) Is that that fair? Like, they don't seem... She doesn't seem... We were just talking about how she's trying to make sense of the world. I don't know that she makes sense of men, per se. Yeah, maybe not. I think she's she's drawn to the confidence that men have. That's a big thing for her, right? So her first college boyfriend is this very brash, opinionated, young, intellectual guy. And she is drawn into that orbit, right? The charisma of uh, being around a guy like that because she doesn't have any of that confidence herself. There's been no way for her to develop that in the world. Um, So she's excited by that, but it's also a little dangerous for her because she gets subsumed into um, the orbit of um, more powerful men who seem to, they seem to know what they're doing, you know? And she's like, oh, I'll go along with that. And that can only carry you for so long, right? And that's what happens to her is that she allows herself to be kind of taken over or or drawn up in the current of uh, a male filmmaker's career. And eventually that falls apart for her. Is Robin the opposite? She seems to have dominion over the men in her life. <laughs> yeah, she's a master. Yeah, she just masters it. And she totally makes her own you know, dictates of like what a relationship is going to be, what a, what a friendship is going to be, what a professional career is going to be. She basically doesn't take any crap from anybody right. and right. Um, sets her own terms for sure. Now we've talked about the role of motherhood and I want to ask you about the animals in this yeah. book because there are cats and wolves <laughs> And yeah, and birds and birds. And I found and there's probably more. There's probably more other things, too. But in particular, what stood out for me were these this cat drama that occurs (laughs) in the apartment and um, and also these wolves. And I wonder about their role as animals as providing kind of comfort, but also the sense of responsibility among uh, particularly, I suppose, particularly against uh, with within Robin. Well, no, and Lark They're But yeah, they have an animal thing. Does that speak yeah. to does that speak to anything the fact that uh, their personality types that they're drawn to animals these and ultimately truly free they have like a purpose but not <laughs> right like, there's something going on philosophically I feel like about their relationship yeah. with animals was that fair to say yeah. yeah absolutely yeah Robin in particular is really drawn to animals as representatives of freedom as people who kind of live outside of the constraints of the civilized world, but also as as emblems of, of art making and of beauty. So um, Robin, she winds up playing her piano uh, in this old barn that she has. And frequently the only audience are the birds that are fluttering in the rafter, making their own, uh, you know, sometimes discordant, wild, uh, beautiful music for their own purposes. And the birds don't care about audience and they don't care about marketing and they don't care about recording and selling the music they just make it Mm -hmm. and that's what robin wants she wants to make art 
that's divorced from all of those kind of concerns about reception. And the wolves too, right? She's, um, she's really drawn to wolves and she winds up trying to uh, create a sort of conservation area for, for wolves on her property. And the wolves do this howling, this musical uh, kind of harmony that she loves and finds deeply soothing, again, because I think it's, um, it's gorgeous and it's free. Are you an animal person? Do you, do you have animals? Do you like animals? I'm an animal person. I'm not out there like sleeping with the with the with the wolves in their in their cages like like Robin is. But I definitely write a lot about the natural world and about um, why it's important to value it on its own terms and what it can kind of offer to us. So some of that is for sure in the book. You've mostly been a, a city dweller, I gather. The natural world appeals to you because of the escapism it provides. Do you get out and do stuff? Do you go out camping, hiking? Yeah, I love to be out in um, out in the world, especially especially hiking. And um, yeah, just it's um, for me. It's that's where like if uh, the mind is a well, that's where I fill up the well. That eventually, you know, I come home and 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 write my stories. But I definitely need that kind of peace and solace and space, you know, room to think that you can get when you're out in nature. Do you do you feel like escapism is a major part of this novel? I, I feel like with, within. Uh, Lark's interest in films, her immersion in it, in the world of film, mm-hmm. and within uh, Robin's sort of escape to the Laurentians, you know, out of the city, there's something going on there where they, they need to get away from normal life, at least. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I think they they need to get away from a world that feels like it's hemming them in all the time. And they're trying to figure out where those boundaries are. Like, how can they be the people that they want to be and not be stuck in roles that feel confining. Yeah. This, this speaks to you. Do you feel this? Do you have these impulses? Do you have these feelings? <laughs> I think anyone feels that anyone who, um, you know, when you think about, you know, who am I, who am I going to be? You know, it's a very existential question. Like how much care can I take of other people? Care can I take of myself? How much morality can I bring to the way that I move through the world? I, I feel like those are questions that a lot of people struggle with, including myself. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. Well, the book is called Dual Citizens. Uh, there's, it's, I feel like it's a play on the term because you have these sisters who are bound together and you have these mothers or want to be mothers who are basically carrying ch- children <laughs> uh, yeah. so they 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 have their own duality in a sense uh and then uh maybe this is too trite but you've got a Canada US thing happening as well between yeah. Montreal and New York are you commenting on I, our relationship or the geopolitics in some way and in, in, in calling yeah. the book as much yeah, it's it's not a political essay, but for but for sure. I mean, I myself am a dual citizen of Canada and the U.S., and so are the so are the characters in this book. And I think a lot about citizenship as a question of belonging, right? As and as a question of identity, right? So if you are a citizen of some place, what does that mean? And um, what rights and responsibilities do you have? What privileges do you have? What um, involvement do you have with the other citizens of that world? And so as you move across boundaries and as you make your home in different countries or in different regions or in different families, you can think about what citizenship means on a lot of different levels, emotional, political, and otherwise. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating work. And I, I thank you for taking time to to talk about it with me. What's sort of coming up next for you? I, I know these these books, you can't just write them in a couple of weeks. It takes <laughs> takes some time, right? Oh, sure you can. I knocked this one off just in a Monday. 
do you have do you have a plan for a, a next novel um i don't yet have a plan for a next novel i do in addition to writing novels also uh write short stories which is a form that i really love so my next book uh, uh that will come out will be a collection of short stories Oh, okay, cool. So you have uh, these, uh, you've already got some of them done? Yeah, they're mostly done. And I think it should be out within the next year or two. Okay, great, great. And where can people learn more about you if they want to on the internet and more about uh, this book, ordering it? Do you have any sense of a a website or something that we can send people to? (laughs) I do have a website. It is alexoleanauthor.com. And I'm also on all of the various social media are you? Do you enjoy the social media? We've talked about re- reality TV and surrealism and and perception. Yeah. Do you like it? I do like social media. I mean, I'm not on it all the time. I try to be measured about it, but I honestly have learned a lot about the world from encountering different voices and experiences on a place like Twitter. And I feel like it's been really educational for me and very democratic. And um, when I was living outside of Canada. Uh, it was a way that I, I really kept up with a lot of events in Canada, both political and literary. So, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a user. For okay. Sure. As you were speaking, I just thought about all the intricate science and music that's in this book. Uh, do you use uh, I mean, do you, I assume you did a lot of research on this. This wasn't something you knew offhand. You use the Internet mostly. Or what did you use? I do, I do use the Internet. Yes. Uh, and I and I also did some interviews with people. So it's um, one of the fun things about being a writer is that if you call people up and say, I'm working on a novel about X, could you talk to me about what you do for a living? Most people will say yes and tell you all about what they do for a living. So everything from wolves to reality television, you know, I had people kind of guiding me along the way, which I'm very grateful for. These aren't in your background somehow. <laughs> no, never you, worked in reality TV. Never, never slept. You say you never slept with the wolves, so to speak. No. Okay. I did visit a wolf preserve and it was super fascinating. And, you know, the wolves themselves were incredibly beautiful and charismatic animals. But really, the people who had chosen to spend their lives among the wolves were especially fascinating to me. Did you make this trip because you were working on this book? Yeah, I did. I did. I visited a wolf preserve in in Pennsylvania, and uh, it was great. I just wondered if you went to the wolf preserve, then it triggered the idea for the book. But no. Right. No, no. other way around. Other way around. Okay. Well, I appreciate the wolf clarification and uh, this conversation. Generally, Alex, this was a pleasure, and I, I thank you again, and I wish you the best luck with everything going forward. Thanks so much. It was great speaking with you. Thank you to Alex Oline, and thank you to you for listening to this episode, the 486th episode of Creative Control featuring Alex Oline. Creative Control is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available on all iOS and Android platforms, and also things like Spotify, YouTube, Audio Boom, all sorts of other things. If you're looking for a particular episode of the show that you've heard about and you can't find it on any of those things for some reason, or if you want to learn more about me and sign up for my regularly scheduled newsletter, please visit vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at vishcreative, or follow me at vishkana. You can also listen to a radio show version of Creative Control on Wednesdays at noon Eastern Standard Time, around the world at cfru.ca, or on an actual radio at 93.3 FM if you're in or near Guelph. Also, please visit patreon.com slash Control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast financially. It needs your help. 
It doesn't have a lot of financial support currently, but we'd like to change that. So patreon.com slash creative control. And thanks to all of you who do that, by the way. I didn't, I didn't mean to sound ungrateful. I, it's really amazing that you do that. And if, you, if you're not doing that, please consider going to patreon.com slash creative control right now. Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, Planet Bean Coffee, and Granddad's Donuts for their in-kind support for this show. And thank you to Jim Guthrie. You can learn more about Jim at jimguthrie.org. He makes lots of amazing music, and he provides me with a song for this show. And finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Alex Olin and for checking out the other episodes, perhaps subscribing to the podcast, telling your friends to check out the show and listen to the show and, and all those sorts of things. It means a lot. I will talk to you very soon. Bye for now. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.